0: Sometimes, like you said in an earlier episode, Misasha, we get emails from people, or even more amazingly, they're publicists, of people who want to come on the show. And as we were going through them, Andre Brown stood out to us because of his very practical approach to DEI work, in particular, to help us address the question that we think is critical at the very beginning of starting to do this work, which is how to establish your personal baseline, right? Right the starting point of all of this work, like how has race and racism shaped my life? What are the things we can do to establish what lens we're looking at the world through right now? Questions like, what do I know and what have I absorbed? And what are the things that I might need to start unpacking and unraveling and unlearning and relearning?
1: And you know, my favorite Sarah, which is continuing to ask why in all of the spheres of influence that we all hold and then not taking, well, because it's always been this way. As an acceptable answer.
0: Yes, totally. So we talk with Andre about all of this and more. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. So excited for this conversation today. Andre, would you please introduce yourself for our audience?
2: Sure. My name is Andre Brown, and I am the founder and CEO of Jump Street Coaching. I also have a division of Jump Street Coaching called Racial Justice, where I do DEI coaching, consulting, facilitation, and training work. And uh, I'm calling from, I'm talking to you from uh, Miami, Florida.
1: So I am so excited as well, because when we heard about racial justice, which is, you know, a way to make actionable and meaningful racial change, that like got us all jazzed up. Because one of the main parts of our recent book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, is all about the action part of it, which sometimes gets lost in the shuffle. You know, we want to listen to people's stories and learn the history so we understand how we got from, you know, sort of the start of our country to here. But the key part is that action piece. So I'm super excited to discuss that today. And I'd like to start with, you know, the problems that you saw in the DE&I field and what you created to solve for those problems. So I'd love to just jump right in there.
2: Sure. If I could give you just a little brief background. Prior to founding my company, I worked in child welfare for the state of Rhode Island, and it was the Department of Children, Youth, and Families, It's a state agency that makes sure that we provide support for families and children within our care. And so what I would do in my role as a trainer was provide training services for social workers and child protective service workers. And to make sure that they were getting the support they needed to be able to work with the families and children well. In that role, I was also tasked with uh, creating trainings for you know, DEI-specific trainings, cultural competence, those types of things. And for me, the interesting thing is, is that I found that within those trainings, it was really, really challenging to get people engaged. You know, like some of the trainings were short trainings. It might be, you know, three hours or so. Some might be multi-day trainings. But I found that it was really difficult to engage people, especially in those longer trainings, and get them to open up about their beliefs, their perspectives. And for me, I felt like there was a better way to do that. And this came after several years, was especially after the uh, George Floyd murder. As a result, I felt like there was a different way that needed to be done in terms of approaching DEI, in terms of educating people and that type of thing. So that was the impetus of me creating my approach and my system for racial justice.
0: I really appreciate that because, you know, I loved learning about your work because part of your work helps people establish a baseline when it comes to race and racism. I mean, you just mentioned people weren't able to express what their beliefs were, what they are coming to the conversation with and what they're coming to the interaction with other human beings with. And this is one of the biggest things that Misasha and I talk about. You know, we say we must start this work by spending some time exploring our earliest memories of race, our understanding of racism and the structures that have been in place in our country. And in order to know what we still need to learn to understand the big picture. So could you help us help our listeners? I want to know, how do we figure out where our personal starting line is. I think a lot of people are scared to enter that conversation. So why is that important to figure out a baseline and how do we start doing that?
2: Great question. Basically, in terms of starting a baseline, everyone comes into this situation in a different place. So not everyone is going to be at the same level. Some of us are more conscious or have studied how to be more racially competent or have a better understanding of our biases and that type of thing. And so others might not necessarily have given much thought to that. So I feel like one of the best ways for people to come in once they realize that they want to do this work, that they want to make a change or create or just even uh, as simple as becoming more, conscious of themselves there's a few different things that they can do and first and foremost i feel the best way to approach it is to educate yourself and there's different ways you can do that you know you can do it through uh, reading books listening to podcasts like yours watching tv movies documentaries there's excellent information out there there's a lot of really good information and i've learned a lot through those mediums myself if you've decided that you want to make a change and that you want to become more socially conscious, those types of things are are fairly easy to do. But the other things that you can do that really, I think, can like move the ball forward in terms of helping you to establish a baseline is to look at those things around you. So what I mean is to, you know, maybe first and foremost is to kind of learn what the different terms are in terms of social justice and racism there's a lot of different terms but if you're aware of those it can really help to kind of give you an understanding of what you're looking at and so that you're able to kind of be fluent in that language in the language of racism and so by doing that that's one of the most basic things you can do you can also better in terms of recognizing your own privilege and where you are in terms of where you're coming from you know what your racial background is what your ethnic background is what your family's beliefs are and were because you know as we're moving forward as we're growing we're all influenced by our families in one way or another you know especially early in life you know and as time goes on sometimes we have to unlearn or rethink some of those beliefs but By taking a look at your own background, you're really gonna be able to get a sense of where you are in the process. Another thing that I think is really helpful is to look at your biases. There's different tools out there. One of the ones that I use through the the workers that I the, the participants that I work with is the Harvard implicit. Uh, association test. And you can go online and take that. And that can really give you a, a sense of what your biases look like. One of the interesting things that I feel is a can really give a good sense of where you are in terms of your own development is to look at your surroundings, whether it's work, your family life. And I mean, you know, both your, your primary family and your extended family and your community. And one of the things that I tell folks is to take a look at your own geographic area. So if you're talking about, you know, I live in Miami. If you're talking about Miami, take a look at, and this is easy to do, you can Google information about what types of issues have stood out in terms of your area's Your city, your county, your state, but primarily focus on the the smaller area, even small towns. Google racial incidents that have occurred in your areas and get a sense of what that looks like. Get a sense of what's happening around you. You can also take a look at those areas that are quote unquote, you know, brown and black areas that have been basically redlined and see. If you notice groups of people, you know, that are clustered together, like I grew up in a small town in Rhode Island, and there was such a high percentage of black people that lived in the neighborhood that I grew up in. It was predominantly a white town of, you know, say 16,000, but it was easy and clear to understand how those people were kind of clustered together in certain ways. So you can gain a lot of insight in kind of looking at those areas around you and kind of determining what the climate is and was in terms of racism in your geographic area. Another thing that I think that can really help people is to take a look at, you know, pick a number, whether it's 25, 50, take a look at the, at the numbers of people the Black, Indigenous, the people of color, the BIPOC. take a look at how many of those people you have in your life. How close are they? They're like taking a look at those the, the closest people in your life and look at the percentage of those people that are in your life. Is it very, is it mixed? Is the percentage fairly high? Or is the percentage like negligible? Is it really, really low? And on a regular basis, you have very little contact with people. So by starting this process and by looking at the markers in your life to kind of tell you and give you a sense of where you are as far as your personal baseline, you can really get a, a good sense of where you're starting from. Another thing that's really important is to make sure that you understand that racism does exist. That's key. <laughs> Understanding that racism it is real. And also believe, like listen to, and validate the experiences of the BIPOC around you. Like, if somebody tells you something, don't assume that they're lying, because chances are that just about every person of color in this country has experienced some form of discrimination or racism. And it's important for us to recognize and validate that. One other thing I think that's really important, especially for. Uh, those people who are women, just thinking in terms of your experience, think of the experiences that you've had where you've been discriminated against because of your gender. Think about those situations and think about how that landed with you, how it felt. And that can at least give you some insight into what it's like to be discriminated against. And so that's also uh, an important component for uh, getting to establish that baseline.
1: Thank you for sharing all of those, because I think that what I heard you say is that, you know, these are things that are accessible to us, right, to everyone. These are things that require a little bit of curiosity. Sure, it requires, you know, some asking of my favorite question, which is why, right? Why are things, you know, the way they are? Why are neighborhoods set up the way they are? And who lives in those neighborhoods? Why do I not have friends that don't look like me, you know, for example? And, you know, I, I just think there's so much there, right, that we can do, but that sometimes there is barrier to that because of our lack of curiosity. Or, and I feel like Sarah, like, wants to jump in right here. No, I'm like, I have a question. Yeah, <laughs> I can feel it through the screen.
0: So this is why we do it this way, so we can read each other's body language. I agree with you. It is all accessible. And what I heard was some things are things that we can are doing anyway, like change what media consumption, right? Like you're going to watch a movie on a weekend, maybe take in a documentary instead of another film. And then some of the things are basically things that we can add to our lives. Like it's leaning into that curiosity, Misasha, that you were just talking about, but what cadence do you find that is helpful? Like how do people hold themselves accountable to looking into, for example, the local news. Like, for example, when you mentioned that, it occurred to me that that is so powerful to understand because we always talk about starting within our own community and our spheres of influence. You know, when I realized that Elijah McClain was murdered 15 minutes drive away from me, it makes you realize that this is all personal and it's happening in our community. But what we hear sometimes is people say, well, I don't have time. You know, they don't want to spend that time to do it. So how can people who are hoping to be better citizens create some sort of habit or like, you know, what do you find helpful for them to do that extra research?
2: Right. That's a great question. I think first and foremost, it has to, they, people who are coming into this need to have an understanding and have a reason why they're doing that. Why do you want to become more socially competent? Why do you want to, you know, develop or implement an anti-racism mindset? It first and foremost needs like, ask yourself these questions. What am I trying to do? Why am I doing this? Once you've answered those, like you have to, you know, there's ways that you can hold yourself accountable by either like by professing it to other people. Hey, listen, I am feeling different now. I am like, I want to learn more about racism. I want to learn more about, you know, potentially becoming an ally and developing these skills and this knowledge so that I can help to fight racism. So there's, you know, in terms of holding yourself accountable, you can develop things on your own. Okay, well, I'm going to do X, Y, Z on a regular basis. I am, because I think first and foremost is that people need to understand that if you are undertaking this, if you're serious about it, you need to recognize that this is a lifelong process. This is a lifelong commitment. And I'm not trying to scare people away, but if you are really serious about eliminating racism and eliminating discrimination on the basis of race or anything, you know, uh, gender, sexual orientation, whatever it is, it needs to be consistent because if it's not consistent, it's not going to be effective. It's not going to work. And so there's a number of different ways that you can approach it, you know, by holding yourself accountable, maybe connecting with people Other people who have your mindset and and want to do the same, becoming involved in those, those types of circles, you know, depending on whether you have people within your own life that are close to you, whether it's family, friends, there are opportunities for people, especially now, given that there's so much social media, people are connecting like through Every place from Eventbrite, LinkedIn, Facebook, you name it, people can find a a sense of community. And that can also help in terms of helping people to be able to grow and learn. You know, sometimes, you know, we might make mistakes, but if we're part of a community, we're more apt to hold ourselves accountable and we're more apt to maintain that motivation to grow and to move forward.
1: You know, speaking of community, I want to shift gears for a second and talk a little bit about your creation coaching for community, right? Because I really love, and sort of along the lines of the question that Sarah just asked, that it's, you know, what you say about it is that it's meant to have sort of regular people address racism without shame or blame, because that is what we so desperately need as a nation, right, for people to do so through acts as well, through acting and get loud but you know they're along with people feeling like this is an additional layer of something and by people I mean white people feeling this is an additional layer or you know I don't know where to start with this there's a lot of shame that comes up and people get defensive and the minute you know they feel shame they're like well I'm out I'm done so how do you facilitate removing that shame or blame from this conversation
2: great question when i bring people together you know whether it's individually as a member of a group or a team, one of the first things that I feel that I need to do is to explain that, you know, first and foremost, it's really commendable that they are pursuing this, that they are understanding that there needs to be a change. And, you know, through that process, I actively tell them that it's not about what happened before, it's not about what happened in the 1800s or 1960s or yesterday. It's about what you're trying to do now. And there's no reason for them to feel shame, blame in terms of what they're doing, because it's like, if they have decided, okay, I want to become anti-racist, I want to grow as a person and be a part of the solution, then they're welcome. And I hope through speaking with them, letting them know that It's okay. You know, we all have made mistakes. I have learned, like I've made mistakes in terms of everything from, you know, how I address people or what I said. We're all in it to learn. We're all in it to get to better, to be better. So we may have started in one spot, but that doesn't mean that we can't grow. And that's what it's all about. So, you know, through my programming and my mission, it's really about helping people to understand, to reflect, you know, I use coaching to help them think about what they're doing and what their beliefs are to question those things so that they can kind of look within to be able to gain clarity. And I partner with them to move forward in that way.
0: I mean, you just led right into my next question because I'm a trained life coach as well. And so I, you just mentioned coaching. You know, what role does coaching play in anti-racism?
2: Like a number of roles, you know. Essentially, you know, one of the the main tenets of coaching is that we allow our clients to gain an understanding themselves, help by partnering with them and helping them to really take a look at their beliefs and come to a conclusion on their own through our questioning, our questions, and how we talk with them. So it's really, you know, one of the things is, is like as they're going through if there's something as a coach, if we're if we're hearing something that might sound incongruent to either what they aspire to be, what they want to be, we're able to kind of point that out to them, to to bring it to their attention. We're also able to create goals around what they're trying to do. What do they hope to develop as part of this process? So coaching is really a great format because as a coach, our role is to set aside shame, blame, and to really focus on helping that individual move forward as opposed to kind of looking back and languishing on the past. It's about creating something that helps them move forward and be able to achieve their goals in that way.
0: In that way, then I am wondering, you know, what questions, like you said, in coaching, what questions should people ask themselves if they find themselves feeling defensive, right? Like they feel this shame or this blame or this defensiveness, this wall that's coming up so that they can determine whether it's maybe because there are some people out there who are really righteous and and are are working to shame people, or maybe they can decide, like, how do they differentiate whether it's that, it's the other person's fault, or if it's their own self-centering.
2: You know, as you're growing, as you're going through this process of self-discovery, looking at it, realizing that there's going to be situations that you might not necessarily be comfortable in that you're looking to move forward, and you know, depending on who you're engaging with and depending on the situation, they might not necessarily have the same opinion that you do. You might find that you're at odds, and it's really about gaining an understanding, not necessarily blaming yourself and having a like an approach where you're there to, to learn. So like in this process, it's important to be humble and not to take everything personally because there are going to be situations where you say or do something that might hurt somebody or offend somebody. But that in itself is an opportunity to grow because this is not an easy sport to play necessarily because you can't necessarily control how others feel. What you can control is how you respond How you take in information and how you correct things that might not necessarily be um, that might not necessarily be what you want it to be is a continual growth process.
0: I mean, would you ask yourself stuff like, "What part of this is mine?" or "What could I have done differently?" Like, you know, what was the impact of what I said? You know, I'm just I'm curious for some sort of tangible because I appreciate what you're saying in terms of you know we have to be humble. We have to understand that this is difficult work. We will mess up. And so is there like a question or two we can ask ourselves in that moment when we're like, (gasps) you know, that human condition of feeling defensive and you want to be like, no, I I didn't mean that. But obviously that's not what we should say because it's not about the intent. It's about the impact.
2: Right. And so, yeah, I mean, what you, if you're in a situation that comes up, if you're in a conversation with somebody, you know, take a moment to kind of assess the situation And it's something where, you know, you may have said or done something that is insulting or hurtful to somebody, like acknowledge that, you know, acknowledge that, you know, this is a situation where I'm, I'm learning, I'm trying to get better, please forgive me and move from there. Like most of the time, and I think, and hopefully this is what you're looking at in terms of me answering your question, there are times when we might be in a situation and, we, you know, we say something foolish and the person is hurt or angry or insulted and we realize, you know, like sometimes we might have to take a step back and think, hey, you know what? I, I really said something like I really didn't handle the situation wrong or I, or I didn't speak in a way that is appropriate. You have to be willing to acknowledge that. You have to be willing to, to say, hey, listen, okay, I didn't handle that well. Whether it's to that person, you know, you might be able to do it in that moment, but if not, maybe like, say it happens at work and you, you say something to a colleague and it, it hurts their feelings or makes them angry, then give it a little space, give it a little time, go back and approach it in a way that is going to, whether it's uh, through an email or a telephone call and say, listen, this is not my intent. This is how like, I handled this wrong. You also have to take a look at it yourself and realize, okay, what is it that I did wrong? How did I handle this in a way that should have been, that could have been better?
1: I appreciate those because I think it, it is about growth, right? And it is about the fact that we will make mistakes. And then in those moments, how do we address that? And how do we address the impact that we had on someone else? I think a lot of times people just stop talking or just want to so avoid, any sense of discomfort that they will actively, you know, just remove themselves from the situation where you've still got this harmful impact and nothing's been done to address that either from the recipient or from, you know, the speaker in terms of personal growth. So, you know, this is something that, my next question is something that Sarah and I have been talking about a lot recently, you know, and I'm curious to get your take on this too. And in particular, I wanna ask about how do you frame the work that you do Post 2020, right? Because I think in 2020, things changed for that summer, right? We saw this huge groundswell of support for anti racism work and self discovery. You know, people were out in the streets in a pandemic, right? Protesting and raising their voices and getting loud and asking questions. And then that all seemed to fall away, right? I view it like an ocean wave, right? There's this huge swell of support, and then it's like we're in, still in that part where the wave sucks back. You know, and now we're almost two years later, we're heading towards that, you know, that second summer. And you still have people who are, you know, who got loud in that summer and who are now not using their voice at all, right? And so how do you get those people to recommit to this work? Or, you know, the people who are now sitting here seeing like, oh, you know, I'm still seeing, you know, people of color being killed, being murdered that's still going on? Like, how do you get those people to commit to this work in the first place?
2: That's a great question. And it's challenging. It's really, really challenging. You know, as you said, a couple of years ago, everybody was fired up about social justice and moving the ball forward in that space. People in the streets, people, it was in the media every day. It was either COVID or uh, racial justice. And it's a real challenge because what happens is you know, those people who are not necessarily, if it doesn't affect their lives, they just go back or fall back into their regular lives and social justice issues just do not stay on the forefront. So for me, it's really a challenge. But what I try to do is to, you know, whether it's regularly going on, in this case, you know, podcasts, or writing articles doing the blog getting my voice out in any way I can to explain to people that the work is not done and it's not glamorous but this is the thing is that the work has to be continued if we're going to see change because you know those people who are kind of on the borderline you know who are like well you know I want to know more about that what I try to do is to educate them as much as possible I do d i coaching, you know, in addition to my business. And so my clients there, you know, I see them on a, you know, a pretty regular basis depending on who they are. And what I try to do is to communicate to them as much as I can and to provide education for them and coaching to them so that they are, they have an understanding that, Hey, you know, there are still issues and there are a lot of people who believe that there are issues out there and they want to learn. So I try to kind of capture those people in those ways to move forward and help them to see what work needs to be done. So but to answer your question, it is really, really challenging because, you know, unless people are really concerned, a lot of times they just fall off. I'll give you an example that might also kind of tie in here. I was motivated, you know, following the the George Floyd murder and the the social protests. I was motivated in part by someone, a white woman who I was coaching at the time, who said that she really wanted to get involved in something. She wanted to really get involved, mobilize the troops and meaning her family and do something in the community that was going to have some impact. And after giving that some thought, that was what inspired me in part to create Coaching for Community. I then, you know, later on down the line, I reached back out to her once I had, this was a few months later, once I had created this series. And I I said, hey, this is available. This is, you know, like I created this series. Would you be interested in, you know, taking part, you know, in, in one of the first cohorts or first groups? And she wasn't. And that's okay. But it just illustrates the point that, you know, and I think she had mentioned that there were other things going on in her life. She was changing, switching jobs, et cetera, et cetera. But it just illustrates the challenge of that, of getting people involved and invested in the process.
0: But I think it's like we started this conversation with this idea of community, and I really believe that if anybody listening to this wants to consider themselves a good human, wants to believe in the power of, or believes that community matters, this has to be part of the work. I don't think you can be a community-minded, good white person if you're not taking difference into consideration, because there are many different types of people in the community. And we have to understand their experiences if we want to consider ourselves that. So I hope that as people look into themselves and introspect and and take the time, like that they really remember that their racial identity is very much a part of who they are. And if they're going to uncover their own, they want to consider that there's 7.9 billion other people out there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My seven-year-old says, thank you for correctly quoting the uh, number.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think I want people to hear that and understand that it shouldn't be a choice. Because if you're white, you seem to think that you have the option to opt out. But you're being white is just as much of a racial identity as people who are black or Asian or any other race that you're pointing out to it. So
1: well, and I keep coming back to like when you're talking about community, Sarah, right? And I think about the youngest members of our community, right? Like our kids. And I keep coming back to that summer of 2020, where my older son at the time, who was seven then, you know, wrote. You know like black lives matter my life matters right on a sign and is holding it and in what community should we have to have kids justifying their existence right to be part of that very community and we haven't fixed that problem so if you're really to your point sarah 100 percent, if you're really community-minded like we are not we are not there we are not protecting we are not valuing everyone in our community equally and so how do we fix that, right? Where do we go from here? It has to be through action.
2: Absolutely.
0: Is there anything else that we haven't asked that you think we should?
2: You know, sometimes I think that people, what I've found with the people that I've worked with is that they get into their own heads for whatever reason. You know, like people will think about certain things and they'll be like, "Oh, well, you know, I don't wanna offend so and so and so or you would think about some real basic issues that come up, for example. One situation was that like I've worked with some entrepreneurs. In this case, these women, these were women entrepreneurs, you know, very bright, had developed their own businesses and had done really successful in their work. But some of the questions that they had were questions that you would think that everyone would know, but they didn't. And I think sometimes when we're talking about learning more about being culturally competent and trying to be more inclusive, basic things get lost. Like, for example, I had one person who, who said, I want to be more inclusive of people. I want to have more people of color in, like, be connected. I want to see them. I want to have Black friends. I want to associate more with Black people. How do I do that? And what I basically said was that in that situation, you have to go out of your way. You're used to living in a society where everyone's around you. You go to the gym, you go to the grocery store, you take your kids to school, you're part of sporting events, you do different things throughout your life. Black people, or basically any people, do the same things but we're not necessarily doing them together. So if you're looking to become part of, to grow your, the diversity of the people around you, you may have to go out of your comfort zone and put yourself in those situations. And if you do that, you will probably find that people are accepting of you. You know, somebody had talked about, you know, the same person had talked about wanting to connect with black women entrepreneurs and in her area, there were quite a few and she didn't know how to do that. And I said, like, look up a couple people, reach out to them, ask them out for coffee. You know, so a lot of these things are not necessarily that difficult. And so I think in a lot of cases, what we do is we get in our own head and we're thinking, oh, how am I going to do this? How do I become more open and inclusive? And it really is some simple solutions that we can do. So I think in terms of our approach, that we just need to be realize that this ha- we, in order to grow, we need to kind of move out of our comfort zone. But when you're doing that, don't be afraid of the result. Just do it. People are people. <laughs> people are people wherever you go. If you can connect with them, you know, most people are going to be open to that. And so that's one of the things that I would say in terms of bringing people around and having them be able to grow is have them be able to connect, not be afraid and have a thick skin because we're going to make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes, but you can't necessarily take it personally. You have to be willing and open to learning in those situations.
0: Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it so much. If people want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you?
2: Uh, they can reach out to me. My website is racialjustice, Racial justice. That's the, my diversity, equity, and inclusion division of my company, which is Jump Street Coaching. They can also reach out to me through, uh, directly by email at coach. C-O-A-C-H at JumpStreetCoaching, one word, dot com. And like I am open and I welcome all conversations about race because that's, it's my passion. And I have, you know, it's interesting because, you know, like I have all been about bringing, empowering people, you know, especially empowering people from low uh, or social uh, disadvantaged backgrounds. and My work has kind of shifted as a result of these last couple of years, but I am open to connecting and I love to connect with people, especially around these issues.
0: I appreciate that, you know, especially because, I mean, we haven't said it, but you are a Black man. And so not everybody who is a person of color should be expected to engage in these conversations, but you are someone who's purposely said I am open to these. And so I really appreciate you being here and taking this time and and doing the work that you do.
2: Thank you very much. And again, uh, Sarah and Sasha, thank you for having me on the the podcast. Appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock! Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review, and it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.